So we're actually starting a brand new sermon series today. We're really excited about it. It's called Psalms and Proverbs, Teachings from the Pasture to the Palace. So in this series, we will be discussing and um, looking through the um, deep emotions of the Psalms and the wisdom of the Proverbs. So today, we're actually going to be starting this series out in 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. Um, If you don't have one today, there should be one under a seat back in front of you, or actually underneath a seat in front of you. If you don't own a copy of the scriptures, please take that with you as a gift from us to you today. We would love for you to have that in your home. So if you're able, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. You guys bear with me. This is 18 verses we're going through. And I'm from Alabama, and there's a few words in here that I'm probably going to butcher, so please forgive me. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebal-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys be seated. Good morning. You guys give it up for Jenna. She did great with that text. 18 strong verses. <laughs> we were reading it behind. Uh, she hadn't even looked at the text yet, and she, I tell her which one she has to read. She says, seriously, this is the one you're going to choose for me? So I thought she did really well. Uh, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you. If it is your first time, we're so glad that you decided to join us and make us a part of your week. Hopefully someone has uh, grabbed you, shared with you a little bit about who we are as a church and what we're looking to do in this community. Um, I'm really excited about uh, this series that we're going into. Uh, this morning, I'm going to kind of introduce that series. If you, if you didn't catch the, the drift there, we're going into a series called Psalms and Proverbs. First Kings is not Psalms and Proverbs, so you're probably like, uh, wait a minute here. So this is just going to be the introduction of uh, our series. We're going to have about 12 weeks in the summer uh, to walk through the Psalms and the Proverbs. And the reason that, that I feel uh, and I'm really excited about this upcoming series is because I think that the topic of emotions and how emotions should interplay scripturally with God's biblical wisdom uh, on how to act uh, is really timely, particular, particularly for our culture and our time and our generation. Uh, there's a number of different ways to, I think, view emotions that we all kind of either drift between or we kind of have a way that we want to engage with them. The first one is this, I'm a man and therefore I'll just speak from a, a, a masculine perspective. Guys, you probably can feel me on this. It is, when we think about emotion, we typically think about suppressing them. Not even cognitively that we even think about it, it is just what we do. Uh, we just kind of think emotions are not the main thing that we want to drive us, so we just kind of keep that thing under wraps and we go about the doing a, of our business. Some of you ladies, you're like that too. Okay, so I don't want to just uh, pigeonhole that into a male thing. Some gals are pretty suppressive with their emotions as well. Uh, but another thing that's kind of like risen, and, and this is where um, like millennial culture has, been, has gotten a bad rap for being snowflakes. You guys ever heard about this? Uh, okay. <laughs> All the millennials like, don't say it, man. I'll leave right now. All right. Uh, you're making my point. But anyway. <clears throat> All right. I got to go. This is bad. So. Just support all emotions, right? Just kind of like you have these emotions, all of them need to be validated. All, you know, you can have all those emotions. And, and the problem with that, I, I do believe there's something to be said about allowing people to express those emotions. However, to support all emotions uh, with no regard for uh, which ones might be uh, good or bad can be un unhelpful, can't it? You know, if someone's like, I just feel like I want to kill you. You're like, and I want to validate that. You know, I want to say that's okay. You need to feel that. Just express it. That's not healthy, right? Um, the other one is you just share them all. And, and this sometimes gets mixed up and misconstrued in Christian culture in particular when you begin to say, you know, in your home groups, you need to look for a vulnerability, look for intimacy, look to be able to share your life with other people. And so sometimes what people mistake that as is that means I, my home group is really just a major therapy counseling session where I'm going to share all of my deepest emotions with, with others and just be vulnerable with them. And here's the thing. Sometimes because you've pent up all of your emotions you know, throughout the week or whatever, it can feel really nice to do that, right? Just be like, here's everything that's going on. The problem is everyone else now, you know, just you're pouring those emotions onto them and they leave feeling kind of terrible because like, oh man, this, this guy's going to talk again. You know, he's just going to... Eeyore is going to, you know, speak up in home group again, and all of his, you know, hardship that he's going through, and it becomes difficult because, you know, community is not just about sharing unilaterally your, your emotions with no discretion, um, and I think that there's another way that the Bible actually uh, leads us to, and the Psalms and the Proverbs, uh, 
they, they give us a, a snapshot of, of how we should be engaging with our emotion. And, and it's not coincidental that we get this snapshot from two kings, father and a son. So we get King David, who's the primary psalmist. He's not the only one who ever wrote a, a chapter in the book of Psalms. However, he writes the majority of the Psalms. And he writes them from the pasture, right? He writes them in, we, we think of King David and we think of him in the fields. We think of him with the sheep. We think of him being alone with God, the man after God's own heart who worships God. Even when he's alone by himself, he doesn't need a crowd. And this is why he was chosen and anointed to be king over Israel because God looked at a man like Saul who looked the part, but inwardly he did not obey God. Inwardly he did not worship God. And then he looked at a man like David who didn't look the part. He was a ruddy shepherd boy, but inwardly he was a king at heart, loyal to God. Uh, even to the point of, of leading a few sheep faithfully, right? So that's the pasture. The Psalms are this beautiful expression where David begins to show us how to bring emotions before God. Like when we think of David, I think it's important that you don't just think of him, you know, long flowing hair, you know, playing his guitar out in the pasture, and that's all he is. He's a warrior, right? Uh, the scripture actually says Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. That was a song in Israel, you know, top 100 charts. He... Saul has slain his thousands, warrior, but David his tens of thousands. At one point, David is such a warrior that he goes and he brings, a little bit graphic, but he brings a certain specific body part to Saul in order to be the bride price for his wife. You can go look up what body part that is. But he kills the, the enemies of God and brings a bag full of their body parts and says, this is how many thousands I've killed for the bride price of, of uh, Michelle or Michael, whatever you want to call her, uh, so that he can marry her. He's a warrior. It says that he could throw the javelin with both hands. He's the one who stands up and fights Goliath. You guys remember this story? So when we think of David, we have to think warrior, right? Strong man. And many of us, we, think, we don't think warrior, man's man, and emotions, and some of the stuff that you hear from David in the Psalms. Like David can almost seem pretty schizophrenic. He almost feels millennialish in some of the ways in which he's just always you know, crying out to God in the Psalms. And yet he does. He brings all of these feelings, all these thoughts, all these emotions to the Lord. And then we get Solomon who most of his life is, in the, is lived in the palace, if not all of it. Uh, he's born and he gets the kingship. And it says in the scriptures that God makes him the wisest man to ever live. And he has great judicial power and he has great judicial prowess. Uh, Solomon was, uh, calls himself the teacher. If the Psalms are the songbook of Israel, then the Proverbs are a lot like the textbook of Israel, <laughs> uh, where Solomon calls himself our great teacher. And you have these short, snippets of truth and wisdom that are given from the wisest man to ever live on how we should actually act. One helpful way to think about the Psalms and the Proverbs might be this, that you have the Psalms, which is the vertical, uh, how we bring our emotions to God, how we should look to run to Jesus with our emotions and our thoughts, and how we should commune with God versus running to just with no discretion, share our emotions with everyone else. You notice David, uh, rarely he does, but rarely is he having the same kind of vulnerability that he has in the Psalms with his mighty men, right? Most of this vulnerability is specifically vertical. And then you get with um, Solomon, and there's this horizontal, how do we engage with our emotions and how do we act towards people, right? And so because of that, you'll get some push and some pull. You might see David being real, like expressing some real anger in some of his psalms. And then you'll see his son say that you shouldn't hang out with angry men because they're just fools. Well, then what about your dad? <laughs> right? Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, briefly before we pray and before we kind of jump into this story and why I think it's important and helpful, sometimes I think we are wrongly convinced as Christians 
that we should just numb ourselves against painful emotions like fear, anger, depression. Uh, God grants us peace and love, right? We don't need to feel that stuff. And so you might even do this in your marriage. You might, your, your, your spouse might uh, confess to you, I'm really feeling doubt. You say, no, you know, because God is a conqueror. Don't worry about that, right? And, it, and what we want to do is we want to just kind of placate that. We don't want to feel those uncomfortable emotions where we might be feeling doubt about who God is. We might be feeling fear about whether or not God is going to be good towards us or maybe feeling anger about injustice that God maybe hasn't been fair. And we just kind of placate those and say, no, the Bible says otherwise. Don't even think that. Don't even say it. And yet, when we look at out of the 150 Psalms, um, how many of them are about joy? Now, some of them are. I don't want to make that clear. Some of the Psalms are about joy. But the Psalms that are about doubt, despair, accusation, anger, hurt, and woundedness outnumber the Psalms of joy greatly. There's so many more. How many of you have ever thought, you know, I really want to pick me up, and you went to the Psalms, and you saw David saying things like, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? He's so angry at his enemies, he's like, I want you to take their children and dash them against the rocks. You're like, that's a great daily verse. You know, and the more real warm, you know, feeling. It's intense because the Psalms are an actual true life account of what happens in the inner turmoil of the soul. And if we're all honest with each other, even in church, we could be honest for a moment, we would admit that many of our days we don't wake up just feeling smiley to say the pleasures of God at his right hand forevermore. That's not what you wake up feeling, you know? And I think David's honest with us about this. The Psalms call us to a deeper reflection of the soul. They don't, they're not satisfied with a surface level emotional experience uh, the, the Psalms don't try to diffuse the tension uh, with distance or, or to, to avenge the emotions through action immediately. But the, the Psalms invite us into this third way, this communion with God with your emotions. An opportunity to be vulnerable, an opportunity to be honest, not only with people but with God himself. And that that actually matters. Um, one, one author named Dan Allender, he says, all of our emotions can be seen as a theological statement. And I, and I read that some more, and I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty strong. But emotions can be a theological statement, and here's what he goes on to say. We might, we might say, uh, this isn't fair when we get angry, right? You ever said that or heard your children say that? It's just not fair. We get older, you might say, and as a parent, you probably said this to your kid, well, sweetheart, life's not fair, right? But then as adults, have you ever gotten angry and said, life's not fair internally? You're an adult angry about it. But what Dan Allender says in his book is deep down what we're saying without saying it because maybe we're afraid of saying it is God's not fair. God's not being fair here. It's a theological statement whether we're willing to say it or not say it. And because we're afraid to actually vocalize it, we might lash out horizontally, but deep down we're having a vertical problem. He goes on to say that emotions are provoked horizontally, but they speak way more about, to us about what is happening vertically. Let me say that again. Emotions may be provoked horizontally, but they tell us much more about what's happening vertically between us and God. You may think that your spouse is the problem, but it's not always your spouse that's a problem. It might be what's happening deep down in your soul between you and God, but you're unwilling to acknowledge it. You're because it makes you afraid, because it just increases the doubt. And so you just kind of internalize that and you might lash out horizontally. And then Solomon comes on the back end of that and he begins to tell us how we ought to interact if we are first bringing those emotions vertically to the Lord, how are we to interact with the world around us in wisdom? So we, go, we jump in this morning to a story about Elijah. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Some of you may have heard this story before. I'm going to have to give you the background of it. 
Uh, it's, it's an amazing story about uh, a prophet who does a mighty things for God but expresses deep turmoil and emotions immediately after that. How many of you have ever seen deep spiritual victory in your life followed by deep spiritual attack? Anybody? Right? I want to say that's very common. That's very common. I'll tell you, sometimes I'll be uh, guest speaking somewhere. There's a lot of anxiety that comes around guest speaking much more than pastoring people. In my opinion, I know some people are in reverse, but for me, there's a lot more anxiety with that. And I might preach a sermon, I feel great about it, I get all this great feedback, and it feels like you're on a spiritual high, only to feel really low like 30 minutes after that, really attacked like an hour after that, and maybe the weeks following. And that's what happens here with Elijah. And so what you get is this juxtaposition between joy and triumph and conquering of God and then deep turmoil, despair, so much so that like Jenna read, he says, I'm done, just go ahead and kill me now within like hours of each other. So we're gonna, we're gonna talk a little bit about that emotional spectrum. But what I'd like to do before we hop in is I wanna pray that God would open our, not just our ears but our hearts to hear, and here's why. Because whenever we start talking about this, I don't want immediately on one end, for those of you who are more uh, apt to, I guess, be a little hands-off with your emotions, to just kinda tune me out for the next 25 minutes or so. Uh, because it's uncomfortable, because I just want to come out right out and say it is uncomfortable at sometimes to address what's actually happening at like the subterranean levels of the soul. <laughs> so what I want to pray is that the Lord would help us to go there. On the flip side, I want to pray for those of us who are already more emotive, that are just like, oh, finally, you know, the moment, you know, I want to pray that you don't tear up next to the person who's suppressive because then they're going to walk out, all right? So I want you to tear up just privately, okay? Just alone with God, the vertical, remember? I just wanna pray that God helps us to have this healthy balance that he might meet us here. Because I truly believe that like Elijah, what, what Elijah needed most was for God to meet him in that place um, of despair, of difficulty and turmoil. And I think that's true for all of us. So let me pray for us and then we'll just jump right in. Holy Spirit, we not only acknowledge your presence, but we thank you for your presence. And we ask now, Lord, would you do the tough work of causing us to forego comfortability for the sake of true peace? God, I know the bend of my own heart. And the bend of my own heart is to embrace superficial peace because I'm so unwilling to have and go through the arduous task of seeking real deep peace in you, Lord. And so now for my friends that are under the sound of my voice and for maybe my acquaintances that I have not yet met, would you now bring a sense of courage and boldness to go to that place? And for those who are already apt to be there, would you bring a sense of restraint to be able to simultaneously feel what it is that you're saying, but also on the flip side, Lord, to respect and honor those that are around them? And God, would you maybe start something that's not only helpful but life-changing for the marriages in this room, for the relationships in this room, for the lives, for the souls in this room, because, Lord, I believe you wanna do a great work through the next few weeks, and we just ask now, would you start that? And help me to get out of the way so that you might do that, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we have in this story is Elijah is coming on the heels of, and we didn't read this because I didn't want to ask Jenna to read six chapters of the Bible, but uh, we didn't start here, but Elijah's coming on the heels of a great showdown with the prophets of Baal in his days. And the prophets of Baal, to make a very long story short, are these false idols that King Ahab and his wife Jezebel have not only signed off on, but they have also began to 
engage with idolatry and encouraging the children of Israel to do the same. And they would worship these images. They'd worship these idols. And they had many different prophets. In this particular story, we have 450 different prophets who would come to King Ahab and tell him lies and tell him deceit and give him false prophecies in order to pump up his ego. And his wife Jezebel absolutely loved the prophets of Baal. Elijah being one of the the most vocal prophets of the day, he stands up and says, I'm I'm done with it. And they have a showdown on, on Mount Carmel where Elijah says, you bring all of your prophets and I will show up and we'll both call upon our gods and we'll see who answers. Now that's a bold move, right? Because here's the thing, God doesn't have to show up if he doesn't want to, he's sovereign, right? And we all know this and Elijah knows this, but he believes is that God will show up when he calls that he longs to, that he desires to, not because God has to prove himself, but because God loves his children. And when they're, when they're in deceit, he wants to shine light on it. So, he sh- so Elijah shows up, the 450 prophets of Baal show up, and they say, let's put a sacrifice in the middle, let's see whose God consumes the sacrifice. Elijah says, you're up first, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you the opportunity to go first. The prophets of Baal begin to cry out to their false god. <clears throat> they have all these you know, different rituals they do. It gets so extreme that they, nothing's happening the God, their God Baal is not showing up. They start cutting themselves, it says, and they're trying to bleed and offer their blood for their sacrifices. Elijah's standing off in the corner and he's mocking them. He says, is your God asleep? And at one point he actually says, is your God using the restroom? Like that's what the Bible says. Where is he that he's not answering you? He's, he's like mocking them and they're getting more and more frustrated. Finally, Elijah says, now it's my turn. There's a drought in all of Israel at this time. There's no water to be found. And what does Elijah say? Bring me 50 barrels or however many barrels of water and I want you to I want you to cover all of the sacrifices, these bulls, with water. He wants to do this because he wants to show them that, you know, water would have made it hard to light a fire. Anybody ever tried to light a fire, like Bear grill style, men, okay, and it was wet and you felt pretty lame about that because it didn't work out? He says, pour the water all over the sacrifice. Elijah begins to pray. Lo and behold, we know the story, right? The fire comes, it consumes the sacrifice. It says it licks up all of the water that was like built up into the trenches, then it just consumes then Elijah goes, now this is where it gets pretty intense. Then he goes and he lines up 450 prophets of Baal and he says, and what was at stake with this competition is one of us is gonna die. Whoever loses is gonna die. Well, guess what Elijah does? He gets out his sword and he slays them one by one. 450 of them, this is in the Bible. Could you imagine? That's a tough day. <clears throat> That's a hard day at work. Think about a butcher that doesn't have a machine but he's just gotta kill 450 live things, right? These are human beings, they're going down. He slays all 450, and then to add insult to injury, he goes up to Ahab, who's watching, and he says, Ahab, watch this. I'm going to pray. It's going to rain, and you better get down the mountain quickly because it's not just going to rain. It's going to pour. It hasn't rained in three years or three and a half years. He, Elijah goes. He prays seven times, keeps coming back, and they say, we see a tiny little cloud on the distance, and he says, you better get down. That little tiny cloud comes, and it just pours the Bible says that Elijah tucks in his, his, uh, his robe or whatever, <clears throat> one of my favorite stories, and he just sprints down and he beats the chariots of, of Ahab, right? So the chariots of Ahab, and here comes Elijah, just, you know, Usain Bolt right in front of him, <clears throat> gets down to the city. And you can imagine, this is a shameful moment for Ahab. Not only did he lose publicly, all of his prophets of his palace have been murdered, and then Elijah publicly in front of everybody said, you've been asking for rain for Baal for how long? I'll ask one time and it'll rain, and it happens. And then he beats him in a foot race while he's on a bike. You know, it's rough, rough day for Ahab. Ahab then does what? He does what many men do, and he goes and whines to his wife, okay? He says, you know, Elijah did this, this, and this, and that's where we pick up in chapter 19, verse 1, where Jezebel begins 
to fume. She's furious. And Jezebel's a wicked woman. Watch what she does. Verse one, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword, and then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. What does she say? I'll kill you before the day's end. Now she invokes a curse upon herself, right? She says, if, the, if it doesn't happen by this time tomorrow that you're dead, then I hope that I'm dead. Now what's interesting about this is Elijah's not dead and Jezebel does get exactly that. She actually does end up dying. But she threatens. And here's the thing with Elijah now. He's in the city. Everybody knows. It's not like he can kind of hide what he's done. Everybody knows who he is, where he is, and what's happening. And so immediately, verse 3 tells us, then he was afraid. Now, you might be, if you're, uh, if you're a little judgmental, you're like, why is he afraid? God just showed up and did the most miraculous. Is he not going to do that same thing again, right? Like, all of us can kind of be armchair quarterbacks here, can't we? It's like, uh, God already showed up. Just kind of stand defiantly. It's all going to be good. But here's what we know. God in human history, all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation, has oftentimes stood up and there's those Superman hero moments. There's also those moments like Jeremiah where you're like, here my sin me, and then you get sent off into exile and they, they gouge your eyes out and you're like, what happened? I thought I was like on God's side, right? Or Job, it's like I'm a righteous man and then you lose your whole family, you got boils all over your body and you're like, what happened? I thought I was doing the right thing. So you might be understanding right with Elijah here when he says he's afraid. He arose, he ran for his life, he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so Elijah takes his servants with him until they get to Beersheba, he says, stay here, and then he goes into the wilderness by himself. He came, he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. Now, O oh Lord, take, my life, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a great head of, uh, a head, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, listen to this, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So point number one this morning is this. Emotions are not an internal GPS system. Emotions are not an internal GPS system. In fact, if you wanna change that in your notes, they're a terrible internal GPS system. Elijah just got in, done engaging with the prophets of Baal. He did all these amazing things. And then what do we find? Elijah's afraid, Elijah's exhausted, Elijah's despairing. And you know what's hidden in all of this? Elijah's angry. I'm tempted to use other words. He's mad. <laughs> he's mad and he's alone, but he's not expressing that quite yet in the scriptures, but he's mad. And so what does he do? What is the action that accompanies that? He runs, he hides, he isolates. Whether you admit it or not, or I admit it or not, the feelings that we have, fear, anger, frustration, bitterness, doubt, they all motivate and they mobilize us to act. Can we agree with that? If you can't, I'll prove it to you. You don't do anything that hasn't first been motivated by how you feel. The thing about emotions, too, is that they happen to you. You don't get to choose to feel a certain way. Isn't that interesting? How many of you have tried that? How many of you have told your spouse or your children that they need to change their feelings without much success? Husbands, let me speak directly to you. Has your wife ever been angry and you said, you need to, you need to stop being mad? And she just goes, oh my God, I'm happy. Thank you for that. Let me just tell you from experience, that does not work. How about your kids? You, you need to stop, you need to stop being a little jerk. And your kids go, okay, great, I'll be, yes, mother. 
yes, Daddy, I'll do that. No. You don't get to just change or, or decide upon your emotions. Now, I need to be clear here. Actions and attitudes that come from emotions aren't entirely justifiable simply because you can't choose your emotions. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, therefore, you could take the next step and say everything you do based on your emotions is therefore totally okay and you can't choose those. No, I think you can choose those, but you can't choose how you first feel. That just happens. You get cut off on the highway and the first thing you feel is anger. Some of you rage and you need to go to counseling, okay? Your wife disrespects you. The first thing you think is anger. Someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night. The first thing you think is fear, right? You feel this. It happens to you. And we all know this because psychology tells us then there's the fight or flight response. That's the action that comes from fear. Do you stand up and fight? Do you run away? These are two decisions that you have to make. And, it, and what happens is that your brain actually is built to have an in inkling to one or the other. Now, you can choose through courage to fight even if you have a flight response. You know, this is what the military tries to ingrain in every single person that comes in. Not a, not a run, but a fight, even if your inkling is to book it. But nonetheless, every single one of us has a predisposition. The other thing we need to know here is emotions are not amoral. And this is something that our culture tells us today that I just want to completely reject. Emotions are not amoral and therefore they should be received at all costs. No, emotions are just as broken as every part of your body, every part of your person that's been affected by sin. Emotions can be sinful, they can be righteous. So when we allow emotions to grab the wheel of our will and tell us where to act, we will find ourselves in places we were never interested in going. If you feel ashamed, if you feel in fear, if you feel angry, you may choose to do things you never wished you had done, and then afterwards wonder why you feel this overwhelming sense of guilt. Why did I do that? If you've ever been in an argument with your spouse or maybe just in a relationship with someone, and you get so angry that you say something and you wish you could catch the words as they're running out of your mouth, you ever had that happen to you? That's why I say, you know, watch what you say because you can't take them back. This is where you're arguing now, you know the, the one thing that might hurt them and you just say it, you're acting just like your mother. <laughs> and then you see her eyes turn, you're like, oh God, I'm gonna die. You say, you know, you're protecting the kids, you're like, just go now, all right? Because you have allowed your feelings to become the GPS system to tell you where to act. Elijah experiences fear. He didn't necessarily choose to experience fear, but he does experience fear. And what does it do? It leads him to run away. He finds himself in Beersheba, and then he leaves his people there, and then he finds himself in the middle of the wilderness <clears throat> all alone. And what does God do? God shows up, feeds him, <clears throat> loves on him, tells him, listen, the journey is too great for you. I love that. I love that he just affirms to him, hey, some of the feelings you're having are actually legit. You can't do this by yourself. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But then what we find in verse number nine is he begins to ask Elijah maybe the most important question of all, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or in other words, why were you led here? Why did you run here because you felt a certain way? Like God didn't say, you know, you need to run off into the wilderness. Now he's gonna use the wilderness in a really important way in Elijah's life. And I think that's important for all of us. If you find yourself in a situation that your emotions have led you to, it doesn't mean that God's not there. Doesn't mean that God can't meet you there. Doesn't mean that God's not going to meet you there and do amazing things. It just means that sometimes you use your emotions to the GPS system and it gets you lost. But thanks be to God, we have a God that finds us, right? And seeks us out. Okay, <clears throat> so first, emotions are not a good GPS system. In fact, they're terrible. They'll lead you astray. <clears throat> and if the enemy has his way, they'll lead you to death. Suicide is a perfect example physically, but there's other kinds of death before physical death, aren't there? Okay, let's go on. I don't have a ton of time to go further. Verse nine, 
He came to the cave and he lodged in it. Lodged means he decided he's going to live there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Now, this is the first inkling we get that Elijah's kind of angry. Elijah's internally having some struggles with anger, not just toward people, but toward God. Now, first, let's talk about God's question to Elijah, because Jesus does this in the New Testament, and God does this in the Old Testament. God has a way of showing up in your life and doesn't tell you things. First, he asks you questions. You ever notice that? Like Jesus, in the, in, when he's engaging with people and the disciples, he'll just ask them questions like, was John the Baptist from God or was he not from God? And they all kind of get together and like, well, eh, what do we say, you know? Or he'll ask Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, well, yes, I love you. And he'll ask him again, do you really love me, Peter? It's like, oh, man, he says it twice. It's just, when Jesus starts asking you repetitive questions, it hurts, all right? But this is what God does. So let's dissect this question that he asks Elijah. What does he say? There's three things here. We have a purpose question, a place question, and a personal question. The purpose question, what are you doing? Have your parents ever asked you that? That's rhetorical. What you're doing is not what I want you to do, Right? That's what I do when I walk in on Jonas and he's thrown his toys everywhere. What are you doing? And he'll say, dad, dad, play. I'm like, no, I know you're playing. I'm saying don't do it this way, right? That's what God's doing to Elijah here. What are you doing? Number two, a place question. What are you doing here? So what are you doing here, Elijah? Why did you decide to come here? Why did you decide to come to, to Beersheba? And then why did you decide to tell all of your friends, all of your servants, you stay here and isolate yourself and run into a cave all by yourself to live? What are you doing here? You're the prophet in the land. You're the one who I have sent to go and be my voice into a dark situation, and I protected you. Why are you coming to this cave? And then thirdly, it's a, it's a personal question, and I think this shows God's heart. He doesn't just say, what are you doing here? He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? By name, he calls him. Now, that might not seem significant to you, but how significant would it be to you if God called you by name in prayer? You ever thought of that? How significant would it be if you're in your prayer time, you didn't just read Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 through 42, and then write down your prayers, but then God showed up and said, what are you doing here, court? That would feel very personal, right? Like we say generally, God spoke to us through his word. What if he spoke to you audibly and then called you by name? That's what happens to Elijah. And it might seem like a provoking question, right? Kind of a loaded question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I think it is. I think it's loaded to provoke a little bit of emotion out of Elijah that he's unwilling to express. Because let's talk about how Elijah responds. I've been holy, I've been faithful, I've been loyal to you. Sounds a little bit like the older brother in the prodigal son story, right? Others have been unholy, unfaithful, unloyal to you. Others have defiled your sanctuary. They've murdered your people. They disrespected your covenant. And you left me all alone to stand by myself. That's what he says. And then the hidden beneath that implicit argument is this. You left me to fend for myself. You refused to act on my behalf when Jezebel said she'd kill me. And then you refused to protect and vindicate me when everybody starts searching for me. That's what he says to God. Now he's expressing a little bit of frustration here. Now watch what God does here. God's second response is, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? In a whisper. What does God do? He engages with Elijah by bringing three different supernatural physical signs, but he does not present himself in any of them. The wind, the earthquake, and the fire are three things that God has done throughout human history in order to redeem his people, bring them out of slavery. Think back on the Exodus, right? The wind that pushes back and the Red Sea gets split because a great east wind comes. God's used wind in power. Earthquake happens at the cross and all of a sudden the tomb rolls open. The the temple veil was torn by an earthquake when Jesus said it is finished. Earthquakes are moments of God's power. And then a fire, I mean, you gotta think, Sodom and Gomorrah was a great display of God's power, wrath, and vengeance against sin that is terrible. And yet God does three of those and it says God's not found in any of them and instead he is found in the low whisper. And he asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? The low whisper shows God's gentle, loving, relational, close presence that we need in times of our life. Not that God's power isn't pertinent, not that God's power isn't necessary, and even in certain moments of our life, we need to experience it lest we die. But there are other moments where what we need is God's imminent presence. And by imminent, I mean close, near, quick answer. God is always looking to engage with us and pull us out of isolation when we find ourselves there. The very first story that we find about God relating with human beings is Genesis chapters one, two, and three, where God creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, in love. He relates with them in shalom, peace, in the garden. And then because of rebellion, sin enters. Eve and and Adam have rebelled against God, and God shows up in the cool of the day, and what does he do? Where are you, Adam? It says that they had hidden, he had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, they were ashamed and isolated all by themselves and God shows up and says, where are you? And there are times of our lives where we're unwilling to admit anger at God, frustration at God and God shows up in our lives and in a low whisper says, what are you doing here? Now, I was reading a a book called The Cry of the Soul And there's a story about a young woman who had experienced abuse by her father. And that her father was very physically abusive all of her life. And the father, at one point, whenever she's a a young girl, tells her that before I spank you, you need to tell me how you feel. And then afterwards, you tell me how you feel again. And he's being vindictive. He's saying, you can tell me how you feel after I spank you. Meaning, if you don't tell me the right thing, you're going to get it. And the story goes on that he spanks her, she comes back, and she whispers to him, I hate you. And then the the story says that, and he beat her twice as hard afterwards. And she's telling this to her counselor in tears later on as an adult woman. And many of us, this is the reason that we don't want to bring our emotions to God, because we know God is a God of the powerful wind, the earthquake, and the fire. And he is sovereign, and he is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing, And what he deserves is respect, what he deserves is honor, what he deserves is our worship, and we are worthy of nothing. And we have this theology that is all true, but it's only half of the story. And therefore, we fear that if we were to come to God with the things like David does, that what we're gonna get is beat twice as hard. 
that if we're having a hard time in our lives and we come to God and say, why have you done this? Why are you, why are you leaving me alone? That God's gonna say, oh, you haven't even seen the half of it. Let me give you what you really deserve. Because many of us, we don't have a view of God as a good father. And yet David does the exact opposite. He comes and sometimes says the most outlandish things to God. And you would think, this is the guy after God's own heart? I was listening to the Daily Liturgy on the way over here from yesterday. It's a podcast that I listened to. And it was a psalm from David where he's saying, God's hand is against me. And because God's hand is against me, my friends hate me. Even babies look at me and they cringe. Now think about how deep of despair you have to be in to think that when you looked at a baby and he had a goofy-looking face, that that meant it was because of you. All babies have goofy-looking faces, all right? Not yours, all right? If you got babies in the room, they're beautiful, okay? But he just keeps saying, God, because God has done this, I don't have friends, I don't have family, everybody's forsaken me, it's because God's hand is against me, all these things. And the very last line from David is, one day I will stand before God and I will, and I will know my Redeemer lives. It's like this hope laced in, right? God's call here to Elijah is very simple. We don't always have to be right, and I wanna pose this to you. In fact, because our emotions are so tainted by sin, our view of reality can be so jaded when we're emotional. Is that not true? And so many times we, we will not be right when we're in the midst of deep emotion, but God's not after rightness, he's after honesty. Because here's the truth, God knows what you're really feeling when you're saying other things. It's what frustrated him about the Pharisees when Jesus steps in and says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart hates me. He told the Pharisees, you don't love me. You don't love God. Deep down, you, you want to keep the rules so that you'll keep God at arm's length. God stays in his lane when you keep the rules. You don't want intimacy with me. You hate me. And that's what he would call the Pharisees out on. But what was he trying to goad them into? Vulnerability and honesty because he saw exactly right through all the facade. And that's what God's doing here with Elijah. He asks him the question. Elijah answers the question. He comes back and he asks it to him again. Now here's what's interesting here. Is Elijah answers it the same way. But here's what I'm gonna pose and you could do with this what you will. Something I believe happens between the first and second response. Not because there's a difference in the answer, but because after Elijah responds the second time, God then goes on to begin to bolster him, not just with commands, but with truth. And I think the only thing that we can find that's the difference in between the responses is that God's imminent presence showed up and met Elijah where he was. One of the most helpful things I ever heard about the book of Job, because if you read the book of Job, doesn't it seem unjust? If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to um, our tendency is just to be like, well, God's God, he can do whatever he wants, and that's the meaning of the book. And I'm not sure that's the whole meaning of the book, um, although that is a meaning. I think that the, the most profound thing about the book of Job is that God answers Job. And what I mean by that is, is Job has all of these things that he's talking with his friends. His friends are just like, listen, let's boil it down to you're unrighteous, you're sinful, you deserve this. And Job's unwilling to do that. He's wrestling with it. He's crying out to God. He's even in some ways frustrated with God. And yet he doesn't accuse God or curse God. He simply is bringing all this stuff to God. And yes, God comes and he shows up in a whirlwind and he asserts himself. But I think the most profound thing is that God of the universe even cared to show up. But he did. And he showed up to this guy, Job, who's a nobody. So just like you and me. And he answered him. And I think that's what we find here is that God answers Elijah when Elijah doesn't deserve an answer even if he thinks he's the man. Because he kind of does think he's the man, doesn't he? I, only I am left in Israel. 
I'm the only one who stands for you. In a minute, God's gonna say, I have 7,000 other people who haven't bowed their knee, but I showed up to talk to you. All right, point number three, intimacy provides strength and clarity for obedience. Intimacy provides strength and clarity for obedience. So this whisper comes in, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars. Killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then the Lord responds in this way. And this may seem like a laundry list of tasks, but I want to encourage you that it's not. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you're going to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you're going to anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholam, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right, let's go through these things that God says. Number one, God says, anoint these two kings. What do kings represent? Authority. What is Elijah most afraid of? Injust, evil, wicked authority that means to kill him. God says, I will protect you. Go, and you're gonna anoint two new kings. Ahab is no longer king. My king is gonna be Jehu. Then I want you to go to Syria, which I know you're afraid of. We're gonna anoint a new king over there too. I'm going to protect you with the authority that I wield. This is classic Romans 13, that God sets up governments, God sets up authorities. Many of us are way too afraid. We watch way too much Fox News or CNN or whatever the heck news you watch, and you're terrified about life, and God says, I set up authorities, I set up governments, I will be the one to protect you, and that's what he's affirming here with Elijah. Number two, he says, go find Elisha. Those are two different people, by the way. S-H-J, check that out later. Anoint a successor, he says. Now, why is this important? Because Elijah had this little moment, and I don't know if you guys caught it, but I caught it, where whenever he was very despondent and he wanted to die, he said, I'm no better than my father's. Did you guys catch that? What is he saying? He has an identity crisis. He wants to be better than his father's. He wants to do better than his father's. And what you find if you look back at fathers is that he's upset that many of his forefathers had abandoned God Many of his, his forefathers had bowed to idol worship. He says, I want to be better than that, and I'm no better. Just go ahead and kill me right now. I can't finish what you've called me to do. There's another piece here with Elijah not having been married, not having had children, all that kind of stuff. I don't have a heritage. And what does God say? Anoint Elisha. He's going to carry the banner. You're going to be better than your fathers, right? You're going to do something different. You're not going to go that same way, and I'm not going to allow it to happen. And then what we find later is Elisha has this, has this heart. He wants a double portion of of Elijah's spirit, right? And he, he wants to be able to do exactly what Elijah did. He ends up doing twice the amount of miracles that Elijah, to a T, twice the amount of miracles of Elijah. And isn't that, as a father, fathers listen to me, isn't that something you pray for with your children, your sons, your daughters? I want them to do better than me. I want them to be, I want them to do greater things than me. And that's what Elijah gets here from God with Elisha. Who knows if Elijah even knew Elisha? And God says, you need to find this guy, his name's Elisha, he's gonna be the guy. Okay, number three, Jehu is going to kill those who escape. And if people escape Jehu, Elisha is going to kill the ones who escape Jehu. You notice what happens here? Guess who's not going to have to kill anybody anymore? Elijah. Now, I know we can laugh and we can joke about 450 prophets. Man, he slayed them. That's, an, that's Okay, can you imagine the kind of emotional toll it takes on you to kill 450 men? I don't know about, about you, but I've, I've read the, the memoirs. I've sat in counseling sessions with soldiers who have seen people and had to be the one to kill others, and just killing one human being and looking them in the eye will ruin their psychological state for years, if not life. 
There's an epidemic in our country right now with veterans committing suicide because of that very thing. And Elijah here just killed 450 men with his bare hands, blood all over his hands. And you know what God comes in and says? I'm gonna, you're never going to have to do that again. You're never going to have to exact justice. Now, justice has to be, has to be exacted, but you're not going to have to be the one to do it. Or in other words, I'm not going to require everything of you because you can't handle it. The journey's too great for you. Or in other words, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Not he invites me, he makes me lie down in green pastures. When I need rest, but I refuse to rest, he's a good God, he makes me rest. When I need to go to the doctor, but I'm too stubborn, he makes me come to the great physician. God is a good God. And then lastly, he says there are 7,000 faithful who are still gonna remain. Or in other words, I will never leave you alone, Elijah. When you say I, I only I am left, I'll never leave you by yourself. There's 7,000 others who have yet to bow their knee to Baal, and I've always preserved them. You're not by yourself. In closing, God reminds us of who, you, who we are, and he reminds us of who he is when we are able to bring our emotions to him with honesty and vulnerability. And what that does is two things. It builds intimacy, and it breeds clarity. It builds intimacy, which creates trust, but it brings clarity. The smoke clears, and now no longer are we in the haze of our own emotions, but we can see a situation clearly, and we can run to Jesus. And I want to encourage you with this this morning. Many of us, we live in the haze of our emotions that surround family conflict, children conflict, work conflict, finances, relationships. We live in the haze of this emotional weight because we don't know how to commune with God and bring those things to him. And I wanna invite you to run to Jesus. To run to Jesus and bring these things to him because what we find laced in here, and I don't know if you caught it, but I wanna help you to see it, is what we find laced in Elijah's story is really the story of Christ. Elijah thinks he's the only prophet in the land. Jesus really was the only righteous man to ever live. Elijah thought he felt alone. Jesus truly was alone. When Elijah felt like he was hungry, God fed him. When Jesus went to the wilderness, he didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah went to the wilderness and he had food given by God that would sustain him. 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus shows up and he has no physical food, but later on he would go on to tell his disciples, I have food that you know not of. Presence. Went to the wilderness and was tempted. And in every single way, Jesus was tempted by the enemy. Don't kid yourself. Jesus was not just tempted psychologically. He was not just tempted uh, spiritually. He was tempted emotionally in every way in those moments. And yet he did not sin. And then Jesus comes And rather than having to anoint a successor, rather than having to anoint other kings, he himself is the true prophet. He is the true king. He is the true faithful. And he calls us to himself. The good news about our Savior is that we do not have a God who is far off that hasn't experienced what we've experienced, but instead, the Bible tells us we have a sympathetic high priest who experienced everything we've ever felt and yet without sin, and so he can be sympathetic with us in our weaknesses. And so this morning, I wanna encourage you to bring your heart to Christ. I'll tell you, you're probably unskilled at it because I'm very unskilled at it. It feels odd. But many of us, we know how to petition God for things. We don't know how to bring how we're feeling to God and commune with him. And it's a skill to be encouraged. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us.
Jesus, for my friends under the sound of my voice, I ask God, would you not just invite, but implore them to come? Would you ask them the questions they need to hear, like Elijah heard? The what are you doing here? What's actually happening? What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? God, would they hear that question and respond in truth, in honesty, in vulnerability, so that in that moment you can meet with them and speak the truth of who they are and who you are? That you are our great protector, you are our great provider, you are our great physician. And as we come now and we take of the table, would you remind us of the food that we have that is not physical? that sustains us, God, and brings us life. God, where we're unskilled, would you help us to fumble through prayer this morning so that we could find real life and vitality? And Lord, we wouldn't find that simply by confessing our emotions. We find it in you, Jesus, as you provide for all of our needs. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Mm-hmm.